0: You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper.
1: You know, living through that, I'll be honest, was not a particularly pleasant time, and I'm fully aware that people in other parts of the world have things far worse than that. But I wanted to write a kind of urban weird fiction that captured this sort of unease of living in a place that had been, for a good year, battered with some quite... Appalling things that happen to it. Another reason was we we talked about weird fiction, and we talked about landscape writing and all that. And I just uh, weird fiction, which is a loose genre, but I do I do felt I do feel that there's a kind of easy mode of it, which draws on a kind of folk y tradition. Um, yeah, I think it's quite easy to write that kind of fiction that's focused with landscape, and it's like maybe someone has to, you know, they inherit their uncle's cottage in some village and they come from London and then the villagers are all hate them and then kill them in some pagan ritual. Da, 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 da. I mean, there's some very good books <laughs> like that, but it just, to me, I don't know. Most people don't live in rural environments in the UK. They don't. The majority of people live in urban areas now and 8 million people-ish live in London. I wanted to write some weird fiction in the kind of vein I've been already doing, but focused you on know, these areas where people spend huge amounts of their lives, these could be shopping centres, or <laughs> I know it are under you know uh, uh, on flyovers or in in strange car parks. People spend huge amounts of their lives in these spaces that are considered non-spaces. But I think I think people spend far more time in these spaces than they do in in rural ones, and I think that that deserves to be written about.
0: Welcome to Uncanny Landscape series of conversations around, and excursions into, landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, writer Gary Budden, discussing his latest collection of short stories, London Incognita. The music is by Seeds in Barren Fields. More from Gary Budden very soon. And I am your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal, through the conversations and accompanying detritus, that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. It's a while ago that we last walked together, isn't it, friends? Since we met, things have changed along the path. The path through the fields, that is. The one I walk most days. Some of the changes are small things. A subtle sapling that's begun to stretch. A new pair of kites, or of cows, patrolling the field. Or a sign, once shiny and new, now weathered. Some of the changes are more grand. The farmer has enclosed one of the paths. Now it shines either side with new barbed fence. The biggest tree on the way, dead the long year, collapsed in on itself during a summer storm. The horses gather around it, they seem to grieve. No new tree will take its place, there isn't time. And one, maybe two houses that have, since we last spoke, fallen to blackened curtains, or stranger still, already ring with new voices. Change is ever-present in the countryside, as it is in the city. Not that long ago, I lived in East London. Today, I can hardly find my way. In a place that is forever changing, when does such a thing become weird? Here where I live in England, land is the formative anxiety. All of its shifts and gambles trace back to those of space. And nowhere is that more apparent, more immediate than in London. Gary Budden is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction, born and raised on the coast of Kent in southeast England. For most of his adult life, Gary has lived in London, and his work explores and expresses the anxieties of modern life in these two settings, the city and the coast. One of the foremost proponents of landscape punk, Gary's is a world in which DIY hardcore music, literary weird fiction, and birdwatching may inhabit the same aesthetic space. Gary he is co founder of Influx Press. His own books include the short story collection Hollow Shores, the horror novel Judderman, and two non fiction collaborations with the artist Maxim Griffin. His latest collection is London Incognito, weird fiction from a lesser known view of capital, published by Dead Inc Books. It is worth noting that this recording was made some time ago, before the podcast's hiatus. Things may have changed, though mostly for the better. All of the projects Gary mentions are now currently available. And now, discussing his collaborations with Maxim Griffin, here is Gary Budden.
1: So you'd be referring to the project, um, which is called These Towers, Will One Day Slip Into The Sea, which is the uh, second book I've been, short book I've been working on in collaboration with the uh, landscape artist, uh, Maxim Griffin, who's a fantastic um, kind of visual artist who who works, you know, in the fields of, I suppose you'd call psychogeography, landscape writing, um, folk horror, all that kind of stuff. And we did a successful Kickstarter funded project um, last year which was all focused on the area of Dungeness in the sort of far southeast where Kent meets Sussex called the White Heron beneath the reactor that did pretty well and um we thought let's do another one and I wanted to write uh, another kind of short I suppose experimental piece about uh, a place called Reculver, which is also in Kent on the kind of near the far tip of the north of Kent going towards Margate um but as you mentioned, during lockdown, I'd started the project, and then I wasn't—I planned to go there at least once or twice—and then uh, and just simply wasn't able to do that. So the kind of writing definitely stalled on that a little bit, especially because um, for anyone who doesn't know, I run my uh, co-run my own business, which is the independent publisher Influx Press. So lots of other (laughs) unfortunate real life things took hold, like making sure the business didn't go under and ensuring we're getting enough money in and doing uh, a big arts council emergency funding, which luckily we got. Um, So that kind of delayed all of the writing, but uh, it started up again and I have, I've been lucky enough to make one trip already to back to Reculver, and I've got another one planned. But then I think in a subtle way, part of the writing of the book now will be, how do you write about a place when you don't have access to it, which is not something that I think, especially as like a British person that you ha- I have much experience of, if, do, you know, do you know what I mean? Uh, there's, I think there's quite a lot of writing about you know, people in exile who literally can't go back to this place that's important to them for say geopolitical reasons. And this is like a very sort of minor version of that, just thinking, oh, this is odd. I can't go to the place. I mean, I'm t- really terrible at describing visual art that's why I became a writer. It's something I really wish <laughs> I knew knew more about. I don't I don't feel like I possess a fantastic language for describing it. In the same way I'm I'm really bad at identifying architecture, <laughs> for example. But what I like about his stuff is it just I think it it perceives places, it perceives landscape in a in a similar way to the way I do. So kind of viewing the kind of deep history in a place, he has a as much fondness for doing pictures of pylons and power stations as he does traditional ideas of kind of, I suppose, rural or um, countryside beauty. I don't know, how would I describe Max and stuff? I think he, he very much it. I think he likes the kind of landscape punk ethos which attempts to move forward from what I'd call a more sort of traditional approach to landscape writing um, where you kind of muddy it up by focusing on less beautiful things and those kind of I suppose edge that sort of fashionable edgeland kind of writing but then also coming from a perspective of not being this sort of disembodied expert walking through the language and sort of more I suppose like a more the way I would see it like being a more fallible human being in this kind of bastard landscape that's kind of got nature but also you know signs of human a lot of human damage to the area, everywhere around you. He's he's kind of like a um, a neon
0: picturesque, you know. It's it's sort of incredibly bold colors and mm. and very sharp lines and and almost like oh, like a, a 21st century version of the way Edward Hopper painted landscape, which was mm. which was sort of slightly bolder colors than necessary, slightly you know just very subtle cubism almost. You know, things had really Things have, in Maxim's work, things have sharp lines where, you know, if a traditional English painter, for example, did them, they would be all soft. And, uh, and it, you know, it strikes me as, as the way you would paint landscape if you'd read a lot of Ballard instead of, uh, uh, you know, instead of Wordsworth.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Kent on the, um, on the Thames Estuary, so in a, in a town called Whitstable, which is on the south shore of the Thames Estuary, for anyone who uh, doesn't know the geography, kind of looking at Essex on the other side. So the Thames Estuary is where the North Sea becomes the estuary and going into becoming the River Thames and then flowing into London. And Reculver is about, I think about 12 miles east of Whitstable. And a few miles east of the town of Herne Bay, which is where some of my family also live, but it, it's a very striking place because it has these um, remnant sort of church towers that stand, which you can see from miles and miles away on these sandstone cliffs, looking out, um, looking out over the sea. And it was, which so it becomes a fair kind of focal point uh, for people to visit. And it's just often there if you're in places like Herne Bay, you can just see it off in the in the horizon. There's lots of Uh, lots of lovely photography and artist rendition of these two towers but it was also the site of a a Roman fort there which they've got the kind of usual sort of slightly boring bits of you know flint walls (laughs) and all that in the area but the reason was because it's where uh, essentially the mainland ended and there was a thing called the Wonson Channel which connected uh, what is now Kent to an island, which is called the Isle of Thanet, that's all entirely silted up now, so it's all just land. The island connected essentially naturally back to the mainland, but the Romans had a fort there because it was essentially a place where you could patrol this this channel from um, invaders. And I got very interested in the just sort of layers of history of that place. So it was it's got Roman history, and they were placed there to essentially deter invaders. Now the invaders were and this is what i find really interesting about the place the invaders are the kind of people that the british or the english maybe would consider to be us as in they were anglo-saxons so that whole area is is described it's a long walking route you can do from i think gravesend all the way around to hastings called the saxon shoreway um which people might assume was because the saxons lived there but that's not it's from the uh, the the latin term it was a roman term because they were posted along there trying to fight off saxon invaders which i think when you think about i suppose british attitudes to uh invaders and migrants and things like that becomes really really interesting to me it's also just a very i think quite beautiful place it's quite bleak but it's got some great um natural draws there it's got these sandstone cliffs so you have big colonies of a bird called sand martins, which are a bit like swallows um which are kind of endemic to that area. They don't. They they can only live in that kind of environment. Um, so I've always been fascinated with it. So I've you know I've been going there ever since I was a child, and it's a place. You know I'll often go and visit me and my girlfriend. We we cycled there and then on to Margate only a few weeks ago when I was finally able to go and see my family, and I just wanted to to write something. I suppose about my fascination with it and that, that sort of the layers of history there because it has also much more recent um history that's very tied into the sort of british national myths of world war Two, because it's the the place where the british i want to say the british i suppose it would be the raf it's where they tested the bouncing bombs that were used in world war Two, which were then used to essentially you know flattened cities in germany and that's where they did the military test by um it was a guy called barnes wallace who's commemorated with a statue near there in home bay so it's a place that's got all these kind of layers of history it's it feels very you can't be very unique it feels a unique place and i'm, I'm very interested in places that are completely themselves and i think that's one of them how do you think landscape punk you know if that's the right term
0: for the the approach how do you think landscape punk can give us an in to to some different ways of looking at those national myths and those
1: uh uh, those sort of obscured histories so uh, i mean the term i didn't come up with the term the term i think was originally used by david southwell who runs the um the hookland project so for anyone that doesn't know hookland mainly exists on twitter but it's i suppose in the vein of things like Scarfolk it's an imaginary English county that doesn't exist but it's in the kind of real world and it's a place where uh, a lot of these ideas of landscape and history and hidden history and all that and I suppose folk folk horror kind of stuff is it played out and I liked the term landscape punk so I, I appropriated it <laughs> completely but it just seemed like a, a fitting term to me especially in terms of what what really uh, influenced me culturally and I think you too to a degree Justin is um, I was greatly influenced by the kind of international sort of DIY punk and hardcore scene very very much so probably for more than literature initially and I think at its core that kind of musical that sort of scene has that questioning narrative to it Um, it's I was talking about this with a friend the other day, and especially some of the, the kind of British stuff that I first heard from the eighties, um, like I made the subhumans or whatever, I'd, I'd kind of call it an almost like sort of fracturing of your perspective because hearing, I heard about a lot of, I suppose, political issues or issues to do with British history that had not been taught to me through school, initially via these kind of songs, and that sort of fractures your idea of what the national myth is. And that was very really, really important to me so when you apply that to landscape and landscapes and in, inherently tied to national myths and national identity um i think it just helps you look at it from a different perspective so let's use recover as as a good example as soon as you're aware that there's probably more to the story than you're being told you might dig in and do a bit of research into a place and then you find out all of these things i've just told you it's got the world war ii association it's got the the very interesting roman history in terms of how it interrelates with the anglo-saxon history and i suppose it makes things a lot more complicated and a lot more muddled and i think for me it's hard to explain but i find it a very useful way to kind of i suppose look at whatever Englishness is or Britishness is, especially in this incredibly kind of toxic time we're living in. I wouldn't. I, at the moment, I, I suppose I would I, question whether I call myself a birder because I don't get to do it very often. But this is something I inherited from my father. He's, um, I think, a good example of a kind of sort of working-class self-taught ornithologist. Basically, he's been, like incredibly good at recognizing what warblers up in the tree cause from its bird song and things like that. And yeah, I, I've always, I suppose, had an affinity for that and. Um, yeah, I just, I find like many, many, many people do in the United Kingdom, I find uh, its bird species fascinating and just, and, but it's, it's for me, it's related to so many other issues because if you want to go bird watching to see certain kinds of species, you have to go to certain specific places. I mentioned earlier at Recolva, you've got um sand martin colony, which you can only see in that specific spot in that area. So that's, it's a good reason to go to other places and then it gives you. I think more of a, an environmental awareness as of well as well because uh, i'll give you a good example um do you know what a red kite is you know what the yeah are? definitely yeah we've got
0: a pair of them uh w two fields over from me absolutely so i think in
1: the by the late 80s or the 90s as a bird species it was it was down to maybe a few pairs that lived in wales and it would be considered an intensely rare bird to see and then there was a successful reintroduction program and for the first time i've i've seen one flying within the m25 so having that awareness of when i was a young teenager we didn't see them anywhere and now you know if you go out into hertfordshire or even the outer bits of london it's quite common to see a red kite just flying over the motorway you can kind of literally see the the either beneficial or negative effects of, let's say, environmental action. So certain species that I remember being able to see very common, now you don't see at all. A good example would be um, turtle doves. So I think that, for me, it's probably a slightly different perspective I have because I think a lot of bird watchers, they've, they've got the unfortunate and slightly earned reputation of being sort of an kind of middle-aged definitely sort of white men. And I think there's a kind of collector aspect to some of it with the with, people called Twitchers who sort of go around the country chasing rare bird sightings. That's not something that ever really interested me just um, essentially creating a list of things I'd seen. For me, it's a little bit different. But I do think it, it helped for me tie in with the kind of environmental politics. Like, <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous at first, but that are expressed in um certain kinds of politicized music definitely and then in literature there's actually some fantastic work sort of bu- built around the idea of birdwatching i think the most important for me was a book called the peregrine by j.a baker so i make a bold claim. i say it's probably my top five books ever written in english um it was just astonishing that uh, this man this fairly unassuming man in essex could create this this short incredibly charged sort of doom-laden account of him framed as him tracking peregrine falcons over one winter. He actually compresses 10 years of his field notes into this one book and it's at a time when the peregrine falcon was basically becoming extinct in the use of a chemical called, I think it was called DDT, that they used of pesticides, and that basically decimated um, birds of prey, raptors, populations in the UK. And he kind of writes this very, very sort of doomy. I'd say it's almost like a sort of black metal bird watching book about essentially tra- <laughs> chasing, this, chasing this bird, which is like a sort of pure killer that's what a peregrine falcon is but tracking it in its decline across, I think, the Blackwater estuary in Essex over one winter. And it just sort of kind of blew my mind that uh, you could write about nature in that way you know, you're quite a few years younger than me.
0: The the concept that y- even you can already trace a timeline of your life along
1: absolutely the
0: species is is really kind of devastating, but also
1: beautiful. Well, it, it can be, like I said, it can be positive or negative. So uh, I've written this, it's actually in one of my stories, in my first collection, Hollow Shores, which was published by Dead Ink Books. Um, back in 2017 and it's about this idea that you have to be able to trust your own memories to some extent and it's about uh seeing the migratory birds like swifts and swallows decline and trusting your memory that wasn't there more of these 10 years ago now i look up the science and the answer is yes there were more of these 10 years ago um but when you have that kind of awareness when you notice these things and i think what what i think i was lucky to be given that sort of access to to bird watching as a child, it just gave me that awareness where I can be walking down the street and I'll just, you know, notice what birds are there because I know their names. And this is why I find it very interesting how it relates with writing and with language. When you know the names for things, is that idea that naming something gives you kind of power or some sort of power, the world becomes more sort of diverse. Do you see what I mean? Like all of a sudden I'm not looking at some birds, I might be going, oh, there's a dunnock, there's a robin, there's a goldfinch, there's a magpie flowing over there. Oh, look, there's a woodpecker. All of a sudden, the world's sort of multiplied, even though the same things are there, which is why I always wish I could name plants and trees beyond like an oak. But again, I'm useless at it. But if I could, you know, a field of, you know, or a meadow would become essentially a more diverse thing that I was looking at, and it would literally change the way I, I looked at it. I suppose it's worth trying to define what weird fiction actually is um, i would I would call it as a kind of i suppose like a literary offshoot of all those sort of genre fiction subgenres so but mainly a kind of offshoot of I suppose traditional Victorian ghost stories and certain kinds of horror fiction. Um, I would think of writers from maybe the late nineteenth century into the early part of the 20th century, like Arthur Macken. He's a key key figure, I think, in weird fiction, but interestingly also in what would become known as psychogeography and kind of landscape writing. A lot of his weird work focused on both his homeland, and he, not homeland, his home, his upbringing in the, the Welsh borders around Caerleon, but also his experiences of living in London. And he brings a lot of that kind of, I suppose, Welsh folklore, folkloric stuff and deep, deep past stuff into the city. Absolutely crucial. So, yeah, what what, I mean, what is weird fiction? It's so hard to pin down, but I would say it's exemplified by people like Arthur Macken or more traditional ghost stories, I guess, but M.R. James, um, obviously considered one of the kind of iconic English ghost story writers, And then someone writing a bit later than that, but in that tradition, a huge influence on me is the writer Robert Aikman. If you're aware of uh, Robert Aikman's work, who he went on to influence all kinds of stuff, but uh, very much an influence on things like the League of Gentlemen and and, uh, Inside Number Nine, that kind of trajectory of almost like British horror, comedy sort of stuff is highly influenced by that. And all all of that work, I suppose it's more of an American, no, it's not more of an American tradition but I suppose the American form of weird fiction that was solidified by H.P. Lovecraft feels like it's more visible on a kind of global scale. Um, Personally, I find the British and European variant of it probably more interesting. Um, Writers like, let's say, Nina Allen or Mike Harrison, M. John Harrison, their kind of weird, eerie works have have a very strong Focus on on place and often often like the banalities of place they're often set in small towns or uh, patches of wasteland or areas that you wouldn't that at first are not are not seemingly that dramatic and that really appealed to me because I always felt the area I had grown up in was not very represented in literature or TV or film and essentially i suppose everyone feels this about where they grew up but i felt that it was either perceived as undramatic i think the people who live there not very don't want don't see it is that that um and weird fiction gave me a way to kind of write about i suppose the oddness of some of these places and then discuss the kind of deep history that we've we've talked about because with weird fiction you can you can bring in the uncanny you can bring in the fantastic what, or it can just be about someone's de- deteriorating mental state and for me it was a way of even when there's fantastical elements in there or things that couldn't happen for me it felt like a more honest way of writing about these places be it the city of london where i live or the um the thames estuary it, it felt like i could get to a kind of closer truth of how those places seemed to me than i could through nonfiction. I have a huge, huge, huge interest in London as a place and as a concept. Um, and it was, it's always great when you find writers, be they contemporary or from the past, where they basically sort of chime in with the way you see the world, what you feel about the world. I was like, ah, someone else gets this. Um, so the idea came out of that and, and the Hollow Shores does have a number of stories set in London. There's um, a story, for example, called Green Teeth, which is all set about, uh, it's about a couple who, decide to move onto a canal boat on one of London's canals in order to try and save money during London's housing crisis. And I specifically wanted to write what I call a housing crisis horror story in the vein of someone like, uh, Ramsey Campbell. Yeah. Just to, just to mention Ramsey Campbell, who's a very celebrated British horror writer kind of comes out of that seventies paperback horror boom. Um, but I was greatly affected by many of his short stories uh, that focus on uh, the city of Liverpool, which is where he's from, where he grew up. Posting to writers I'm aware of, at least in, in the UK, that was specifically kind of moving that weird fiction tradition into the cities and essentially kind of riffing off of real social problems that were going on in the UK about you know economic blight. Uh, and all the problems that come with the sort of, you know, the inner cities of Britain in the 70s and 80s. I'd written some of these things for Hollow Shores, like I said, with, with a kind of focus on these overlooked areas of London and also kind of trying to reflect characters who had a similar, I suppose, experience to the one I had, which was, uh, you know, maybe fans of the music we've discussed and they would be economically precarious or they would um, have experience of of like the squats in London, all the sort of dereliction and all these kind of temporary spaces, which are things that I didn't feel was often written about or if it was, it wasn't written about in a very, uh, I suppose in a very way. The writer weird fiction writer from the late 19th century up until the 30s 1930s arthur macken he was a big influence in my writing i was always very interested in how he he mixed weird fiction weird fiction traditions i'm not sure that's the right term but he kind of mixed the sort of welsh rural folklore and sort of deep time of its roman past with by bringing those stories into london into into the city his first big example of that was the uh, was the story, the novella, The Great God Pan. But he also wrote some quite interesting non-fiction. He specifically wrote a book called The London Adventure, which was ostensibly his third volume of autobiography. But what it becomes is his attempt to write a book about London, because he's a writer who lives in London for huge amounts of his life, is fascinated by the city. Some of his great weird fictions are set there. But what the book actually becomes is about a sort of big digression about failing to be able to write a definitive book about London, which I thought was really funny and <laughs> I think quite accurate because, you know, it's it, I'd say it's probably impossible to write a definitive book about a city of that of this size. Um, and there's a quote in the book where I took the, the title of my upcoming book, London Incognita, from. For if you think of it... There is a London Cognita and a London Incognita. We all know about Piccadilly and Oxford Street, London Bridge and the Strand. Olympia has made familiar with a little island in other, otherwise unknown Hammersmith. The boat race illuminates Putney and the most inexperienced have ventured into High Street Kensington. But where will you be if I ask you about Clapton, about the inner parts of Barnesbury, about the delights of Edmonton? I think it's wonderful. And it very much chimes in with the approach I'm trying to take nearly a 100 years later with London Incognita. I wanted to write, especially after Hollow Shores with its focus largely on um, the landscapes of the Thames Estuary, I suppose with a more, at least more of an edgeland focus, if not a rural focus. I wanted to write a book that was specifically set in London. Now there's huge amounts of London fiction and London non-fiction, but I didn't really want to do something that just copied that I wanted to write about this idea of London incognita and I knew it was going to be uh, in the weird fiction genre because I'd already written some stories in Hollow Shores that were set in London with this kind of focus on maybe forgotten spaces or unloved spaces or unfashionable ugly spaces within the city and how people kind of interact with those spaces I just thought there was a lot of potential to bring out i suppose almost some of some of the the horror of living in a city does that does that make sense justin yeah yeah absolutely um which is strange though because i you know i I very much love i live in london and i have done for 15 years and i i've I've got very i think real love for the place i do but I, i fully appreciate how difficult um cities of this size can be for people and i'm very very aware of the vast inequalities here, some of the frankly unpleasant things that happen. The, I'm, I'm very aware of the huge uh, homelessness um, problem that's going on in the city, and I've seen that kind of spiral out of control under the Tory government. Um, I wanted to write. I wanted to write a book, trying to capture the unease of. I suppose the last few years of, of life in London. So you've got to remember what's happened over the last four years. Well, obviously we had the uh the Brexit plan obviously, and then we had to deal with things like Grenfell Tower, which all happened in the same year, which um as the terrorist attacks at London Bridge and in Manchester and Beres and Finsbury Park. And I can I was, you know, living through that. I'll be honest, it was not a particularly pleasant time, and I'm fully aware that people in other parts of the world have things far worse than that. But I wanted to write a kind of urban weird fiction that captured this sort of unease of living in a place that had been for a good year battered with some quite appalling things that happened to it, which doesn't sound very cheery, does it
0: <laughs> no but but it does sound um it, it, it does it does sound particularly worthwhile, you know
1: what I mean like it, yeah. Yeah. And another reason was we, we talked about weird fiction and we talked about landscape writing and all that. And I just, uh, weird fiction, which is a loose genre, but I do I do, felt, I do feel that there's a kind of easy mode of it which draws on a kind of folk horror-y tradition. Um, yeah. I think it's quite easy to write that kind of, fiction that's focused with landscape and it's like maybe someone has to you know they inherit their uncle's cottage in some village and they come from london and then the villagers are all hate them and then kill them in some pagan ritual i mean there's some very good books (laughs) like that but it just to me i don't know most people don't live in rural environments in the uk they don't the majority of people live in urban areas now and eight million people ish live in london i wanted to write some weird fiction in the kind of vein I've been already doing, but focused, you know, on these areas where people spend huge amounts of their lives, these could be shopping centers or (laughs) I know it sounds bizarre under, you know, uh, on flyovers or in, in strange car parks, people spend huge amounts of their lives in these spaces that are considered non-spaces. But I spent, I think people spend far more time in these spaces than they do in, in rural ones. And I think that that deserves to be written about. Now I'm I'm good friends with the writer Gareth E Reese, and very recently <laughs> went on a walk with him. It was his idea, uh, kind of along the Chiswick flyover, in yeah. heat, almost matching what it is today. It's 34 degrees today, which seems like an insane thing to do, and I suppose it is, but it's it's very rewarding. I think sp- exploring these kind of spaces and it gives me, you know, loads and loads of ideas for fiction and I won't pretend that London Incornita is a particularly happy book but it was just it gave me a way to kind of again write about a certain experience of the city that I think a non-fiction book would not have done I think what I'm doing I I wouldn't want it to be sort of didactic I still still would want the story to work as a story I've never particularly liked fiction that's essentially acting as propaganda nothing like that but I'll give you an example of something one part of the new book that I'm, I suppose, I think I'm quite proud of it, but also nervous about it when it goes out there. And although it's been published in an anthology, it's being in a slightly re-edited form in the book. I wanted to, like I said, I was fascinated with these kind of, almost like shit areas of London, or kind of places that no tourist would ever go. And a good example is around the, the shopping center, Brent Cross in Northwest London. Um, my girlfriend used to work there. Uh, which I think is absolutely like architecturally in terms of I just think it's a really horrible place it's where the kind of meeting of like two different motorways and the north circular all there and it's polluted, dirty, overcrowded, it's like this tangle of Balabi walkways and underpasses and all this sort of stuff just to get to the place it's not a place for pedestrians. So I thought, naturally, let's set story um, <laughs> under the walkways and underpasses around Brent Cross. Uh, but I came up with this idea that it was essentially a, uh, I suppose, like a limbo zone where there's like, the, the plot of the story is essentially the kind of trapped or unquiet spirits of uh, women from who had frequented the shopping centre who had been uh victims of let's say domestic or spousal abuse so i think right, it's quite right. hard. um i was pleased that some people read the story and they, they they liked that i suppose of a kind of social message to it and i, I admit it's 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 a dark story and i did question of whether i should approach it in that sense and especially writing as a as a man but i think there's a good example of what i was trying to achieve using the kind of the grimness of that kind of concrete bastard landscape to then talk about another problem there. There's so much folk folklore
0: associated with the equivalent of that in the countryside, you know, with crossroads and yeah. And all, all you know, whether you're in American or, or British or, or probably anywhere is folklore. The crossroads is, is this huge thing. But we we do tend to sort of, you know, other than people like yourself and Gareth, um, we do tend to sort of ignore the places that are the real crossroads today.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And just, I, I, I thought, okay, I want to go further down this line. And I think, strangely, cities and London itself, it does have a lot of urban folklore or mythology, but it's much less known in the public sphere than, I suppose... I suppose, more fashionable ones, the ones that are associated with villages, the countryside. So a great example is um, this thing called the Queen Rat that I discovered from uh, Victorian London. And there was a group of guys who were known as Toshers in sort of early 19th century London. And they, they, quite disgusting this, their job, self-appointed job, was they went into the sewers of London at low tide, low tide of the Thames, to sort of sift through all the muck for dropped coins and dropped stuff, which they then, you know, take themselves or sell on. And their biggest threat down there was the sort of London sewer rats. And they had their own internal, essentially like mythology, one of which was a London sewer rat that took the form of an attractive woman and seduced them, which then led to their doom. And I thought, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that, but kind of repurpose it to do with, urbexing as an urban exploration and then try and write something about, uh, let's say, modern dating and relationships in the city. So that's the kind of approach I'm taking with London, which I hope makes sense.
0: Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Gary Budden. Links to Gary's work are available in the podcast info. The music was by Swedish band Seeds in Barren Fields from their project Sanger Sam Romner. Links to Seeds in Barren Fields' work, fascinating heavy music from a political and environmental point of view, are also in the podcast info. The title theme is by the Belbury Polly. The Uncanny Landscape's icon is by Stefan Musgrove, by our creator. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves, I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via Twitter at Old Weird Albion and find links to everything I've just mentioned on the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, or rate the podcast, if that's an option, or keep a lookout on The Wires. And if you've enjoyed it, please share this podcast with a like-minded friend. Just one will do. We're building a conversation here, not an empire. Until next time, remember the words of Count Dracula. Your friend and mine, Mr. Peter Hawkins, from under the shadow of your beautiful cathedral at Exeter, which is far from London, buys for me, through your good self, my place at London. Good. Now. Here let me say frankly, lest you should think it strange that I have sought the services of one so far off from London, instead of someone resident there, that my motive was that no local interest might be served, save my wish only. And as one of London residents might, perhaps, have some purpose of himself or friend to serve, I went thus afield to seek my agent, whose labours should be only to my interest.